0: Welcome to the Holy Cross Sermon Podcast. This whole year we're exploring the life and teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke. We are currently in a series called Kingdom Come. We will be looking at passages at the end of Luke where Jesus prepared his followers on how to live and partner with the work of God's kingdom. Join us now as we dive into another passage. Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Oh, please be seated. Good morning. So three years ago, almost the day, many of you may remember, many of you are here, I was with my wife on the trip of a lifetime. We went to the Holy Land to visit Israel. And it was this incredible experience and one that if you ever get the chance to do, I encourage you to do it. It was well worth it. And it's hard to put into words, but there's something deeply moving about walking where Jesus walked. I wonder, though, if there would be one place, perhaps, in the whole of Israel that you would love to visit, if you've never been, or maybe you've been and it was your favorite place. Is there one place that you would love to visit? Perhaps, think for a moment, and then maybe just let us know. What's the one place you would like to visit? Say it out louder. Say Because <laughs> you've been there already. Yes, indeed where else any one place what do you think the mount of olives yeah it's a beautiful spot anybody maybe want to go see the, the garden tomb the empty tomb maybe or um go and see uh Golgotha or perhaps Bethlehem where Jesus was born so many different places Lake of Galilee well you know one of the highlights of my trip was actually to a place where Jesus had never walked. And in fact, I felt guilty because I was looking forward to it even before the trip. This place that's not even mentioned in the Bible. It's a place called Masada. Masada. It's this ancient fortification about 40 miles south of Jerusalem. And Masada, the word actually, its name literally means Fortress. Uh, I've got a picture of it right here. Andrew, will you click to that? Here you can see Masada, this mountaintop right here. You see how it juts up, very steep on either side. And it's situated on this um, isolated rock plateau. And uh, you can get these incredible views, including of the Dead Sea that you can see in the background. Actually, skip to the next picture, Andrew. And you see my wife, Melissa, and myself. And in the background, just in the haze, you can see the Dead Sea. That's where a lot of people have heard of that, but never have heard of Masada. And it's this perfect place to see any... The advancing army it's this incredible vista all around and so herod the great fortified masada between about 31 and 37 bc so about 40 years before the birth of jesus and take a look at this next slide he also built palaces for himself you see the walls around the top but look as it comes down towards the left there you can just about see these palaces that are built on the natural rock formations there it's incredible views and overlooks that they would have had even in the palace right there and uh, with only one way up the hill, you can't see it on this side of the picture. It's on the other side. There's this one very narrow winding sheep path. That's about it. It's the only way up and down the hill. And so it's become, or it became, this impenetrable fortress for Jewish kings. Now, the reason I was excited about Masada, though, was it was a place that I'd come to know as a boy, not because I'd visited there, but because I saw this 1981 TV miniseries from America while I was living in the UK. I would have been about six. I guess I saw it when I was a little bit older. But this miniseries of an incredible event that happened there was the Roman siege of Masada, okay? And here we see Masada right here. And what happened was, a little bit of historical context, is that about 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, and according to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time, The story goes that in 66 AD, at the beginning of the first Jewish-Roman war, a group of Jewish extremists called the Sicarii overcame a Roman garrison that had situated themselves on top of um, Masada. They'd taken over from the Jews. And these Jewish extremists actually captured it back, and they settled there. Well, shortly after, following the Roman siege of Jerusalem and the subsequent destruction of the Second Temple, that would have been about AD 70, more Jewish families fled from Jerusalem, and they settled on this mountaintop as well with the Zechariah. They used it as a refuge and also a base for raiding the surrounding countryside. Again, look at what an incredible place to have your, um, your spot to raid from. Well, in 72 AD, a couple of years later, wanting to crush this last holdout of resistance, the Roman governor of Judea sent about 8,000 fighting men to surround this mountain and to take care of these 960 people who were then in Masada. The Roman legions surrounded it. They began construction of a siege ramp. If you look carefully on this slide or over here, right here, you can see this ramp that's actually man-made because there was no way up and down with their their weapons and tools and army. They built this uh, siege ramp. and They moved thousands of tons of stone and soil to do that. And by the spring of 73 AD, the ramp was complete. And so while the Romans assaulted the wall, uh, they were sending up a volley of blazing torches against a wall of timber that was at the top. They moved this giant siege tower up the ramp. They wheeled it up um, and they... Actually, as they did that, they finally managed to breach the wall of the fortress. However, when the Romans entered the fortress, they discovered what Josephus called a citadel of death. You see, the night before, the Jewish rebels had realized there was no escape. They were not getting out of here. And so they decided they would all kill themselves before the Romans could get in to this place. And they declared that a glorious death preferable to a life of infamy. Reflecting on this incredible event, Josephus, this historian, writes the Jews at Masada hoped that all of their nation beyond the Euphrates would join together and with them raise up an insurrection. But in the end, there were just 960 Jews left in Masada who fought the Roman army and no one came to their rescue. And so sadly, they took what they saw as the only way out. Now, why do I share all of this with you? Why would I share that with you? Uh, Besides bringing back some happy memories for me, besides the fact I love to geek out on history and battles and all those things, maybe like some of you. I share it for a couple of reasons. Number one, it reminds us that as we study scripture, we are studying history, real history. History, grounded in facts and places and events, things that really happened, not just some made up mythology from the Middle East. You see, one reason as we have talked about that we're spending the year going through the gospel of Luke 2020, we've been going through, is because Luke is a man who cares about historical details and accuracy. Just listen to the first words he wrote in his gospel. "Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you everyone say orderly account account. that's what luke is based on details and facts and study and research and he says it so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught And in today's reading, we have another example of Luke's accuracy. It's a little bit different this time because he is actually writing about something that hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen about 10 years later. But it still adds credence to this because these events actually took place. He records the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But from extra biblical sources, we know that these things happened. They happened after he'd written this gospel. Well, the second reason I share it with you is is because the story of Masada is a metaphor for what we as people tend to do when we see trouble or difficulty coming our way. See, the temptation is to retreat to a perceived fortress instead of trusting in the mighty stronghold of the one true God and that him alone we will find peace even in the most difficult of circumstances. So let's turn to our text for today and take a closer look at all of this. We've got it up on the screen for you. You're welcome to use your Bible if you brought one or use your Bible app if you would prefer as well. Pull it up and let's take a look at this. And this week we're continuing in what's known as the Olivet Discourse. So called because it's believed that Jesus spoke from that place. One of you mentioned the Mount of Olives. He taught from the Mount of Olives, which is a place that if you visit, you'll see overlooks Jerusalem. It overlooks the temple. So as he's speaking about Jerusalem and the temple, they can literally see them right there. These magnificent walls, this magnificent temple that he's then prophesying will be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed and also he tells them his followers will experience earthquakes they'll experience famines they'll even experience pandemics as well as persecution and martyrdom he's what he's describing is a time when change in its totality is going to come upon them it must have been hard for them to believe but their whole way of life was going to be shaken up their whole way of life was going to be different it's this time between the first and second coming of jesus that we ourselves still live within if you didn't hear chris's sermon i encourage you to go to holycross.net and to listen to it after this one it's incredibly helpful but the main point is that jesus was showing his people then and now how to live when the world around us seems to be out of control and there's no way to get back to normalcy to normalcy well this week we come to part two of the Olivet Discourse. And next week, we'll finish with part three. And it's still the Tuesday of Passover week. Jesus is still teaching in and around the temple courts. And his words are becoming more and more prophetic. Now, remember what Chris said about prophecy. It has a telescoping effect. So think of a telescope, right? You pull a telescope out like that. But right here is the immediate view. And then right out there is Jesus Christ and his second coming and the fulfillment. So often when we're speaking in scripture with prophecy, there's something immediate, but there's also something future as well. So having said all that, let's get to part one of our reading. And in part one, we have Jesus speaking about what's going to take place in the present age, just 40 years from his prophecies. This is the immediate view of the prophetic. Look at verses 20 through 22. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are Out in the country, enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Does this sound familiar? I mean, hopefully it will. sounds a bit like Masada, right? What happens at Masada? And all the people who flee Jerusalem to the apparent safety of this mountain fortress. Well, as the Roman army approached and began to surround Jerusalem, they saw the impending destruction. They saw the desolation that was coming, which is an allusion to an earlier prophecy in the book of Daniel. And they fled. But not just to Masada. There were Jewish Christians as well in what's known as the flight to Pella. who, Around about the time of the Roman siege and the Roman destruction of Jerusalem, 70 AD, they settled in Pella and it became this Jewish Christian hub in the early days of Christianity. The disciples had miraculously been told by Christ to abandon Jerusalem because of the siege it was about to undergo. Well, these were the fortunate ones. The Romans were merciless in squashing this rebellion. Hundreds of thousands of Jews died at their hands. Tens of thousands of them were carried off in slavery to Egypt, of all places. The place they had escaped from in the exile. Thus fulfilling the words of Jesus in verses 23 and 24. Alas for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This Gentile army of Romans have brought about a change in the normalcy of the Jews, the likes of which had not been seen in over 600 years. 600 years since the first temple was destroyed and thousands of them were taken in captivity to Babylon. And... 2,000 years later from this time that Jesus prophesies, the Jews have regained control of the promised land. But there is still no temple in Jerusalem. I don't know if you know that, but there's no temple there. If you go and visit Jerusalem, on what's called the Temple Mount now sits a Muslim mosque. And as we were sat there looking at this Muslim mosque as a group, our guide was explaining where the Jewish temple had sat. And one of the guards by the Muslim mosque very loudly explained that there had never been a Jewish temple there. Oh, there'd never been a Jewish temple there. No, no, no. No, no. History is changing, it seems, at least for the Muslims. Well, normalcy has not resumed for the Jews. 2,000 years. (laughs) It's not resumed. They can't go to the temple anymore, make sacrifices and worship there. So the time of the Gentiles has not ended. And it's a reminder to all of us that one of the only constants in life is change we haven't gotten used to that in 2020 we're probably missing something one of the only constants in life is change itself the question is in the midst of change will we trust the one who never changes even when everything around us is constantly shifting well, let's move on to part two of our reading verse 25 Jesus changes his focus here from the present age to the final age. So remember the telescoping idea. And to his second coming, he's talked about the immediate. Now he's talking about when he will return, however many thousands of years later that is. Verses 25 and 26. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken now it's hard to know if we should take jesus words literally here because when we speak of prophecy when there are prophetic words often it uses imagery it uses picture language to show us or give us a sense of what the impending change will feel like not what it might actually be like, but what it will feel like to us. Either way, though, we see that many people will be fearful and perplexed when Jesus returns. They will know in their heads that something strange is happening. Something is not right. They will know it, but they will not understand what it is or why it's happening. And the human tendency, when we go through a situation like this, and when we know something's happening, we're not quite sure why, is to get anxious, right? We start to worry and to fret. It starts to build within us. But as Christians, we do know what's happening. We do not need to be anxious about the future. Because of this passage and because of the full canon of scripture that we have, we as Christians know what's coming. And so one Bible commentator puts it this way. Then will the event towards which all ages are moving, for which the weary world has waited, and by which the work of the church will be crowned and our hopes fulfilled, namely the personal glorious appearing of the crucified risen ascended lord or as luke says in verse 27 and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory Jesus' return will be unmistakable. No one will be able to miss it. According to the Son of Man himself, there will be no question of who it is or if it's happening. No, when he comes, everyone will know whether it's a believer or a non-believer. But the reactions of these two groups will be pretty different. For the non-believer, it's going to be a time of distress and fear. Again, they don't understand what's going on and they are not ready to meet with their maker. And the consequences are going to be terrifying. But for the believer, for the disciple of Jesus, it's going to be a time of great hope. It's going to be a time of great joy. And rescue from this broken world is finally at hand. Deliverance has arrived. And so in verse 28, Luke writes this. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because, and say this part with me your redemption is drawing near let's say that again your redemption is drawing near that is good news redemption in all of its fullness has finally come now you might say well jonathan i was redeemed wasn't i when i said that prayer and i received jesus into my heart well yes but it hasn't come in all its fullness yet leon morris writes there's a sense in which redemption has been finally accomplished on the cross But the unfolding of all its implications is still future and it is this of which Jesus speaks. See, redemption in all its fullness is like when the cavalry arrives in that western movie, right? The cavalry finally shows up. Or it's like when the reinforcements arrive in that World War II movie. And, you know, the victory that was really inevitable and expected but didn't seem that way to some people finally happens and comes about. It's finally achieved. Well, hearing all of this, those first disciples must have been greatly encouraged. And so too must have been the people that they shared it with these generations to come, especially as 40 years later and they're living through the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the Jewish temple itself. They remember these words that they've been told. And they remember that even as they flee their beloved city on a hill, things are going to be okay. Redemption is drawing near. Yes, their world's being turned upside down. But unlike most of the people around them, including the Jews who fled to Masada, they know that their their redemption's coming. Maybe not that day. Maybe not even that year. Maybe not even that decade. But one day when Jesus returns to gather up the faithful, to gather up those who choose to follow him, those dead and alive, and to bring them into the new heaven and the new earth that he is creating for them a place of no more suffering or pain or pandemics or earthquakes or famines or grief of any kind but with joy and peace everlasting well as we come to a close i think there are a couple of temptations for us when we read a passage like this the first temptation is of course to just go like this la 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 I don't want to hear what you have to say, Jesus. I don't want to hear what you have to say, Jonathan. We don't want it. It doesn't fit within my Western notion of progress always advancing. The world is constantly advancing, Jonathan. Nothing bad like that could ever happen. No, no, no. Or it doesn't fit into our suburban idea, as Belinda Carlisle sang, that heaven is a place on earth, right? It doesn't fit into that idea either. And so we're tempted to bury our heads in the sand and hope that what Jesus says will never really happen. It's okay, Jonathan. We'll just forget about that passage. Let's go back to the the lovey stuff, you know, the thing about loving your neighbor and all that. That's good. I don't want to hear that stuff about judgment. No, no, no. Well, another temptation, though, is to live with the mentality of the bumper sticker that I saw once that said, Jesus is coming. Look busy, right? (laughs) The fear of his return at any given moment sends some of us into this frenzy of good deeds, hoping that when he comes back, and he'll look at our lives and he'll go, oh, well done, Jonathan. You did so much good stuff. It far outweighed all the bad stuff. Welcome in. Come on in, Jonathan. Not true. Well, one final temptation that we'll have, and we've talked about this already, is to run to the mountains, to head to the hills, or at least figuratively, to find our own Masada, right our own place that seems to be a secure fortress apart from the lord and just hope for the best we're going to hunker down in that bunker right maybe we do it by circling up the wagons of our family or our community where we live we try to make sure that nothing unsafe or strange or threatening can enter in no stranger no one who looks different than us no disease no unwanted philosophy or uncomfortable teaching we just try and keep safe right Or maybe we do it by stockpiling our wealth, our retirement fund or our possessions and trusting that these things will be enough to get us through any turmoil that comes our way. Or maybe we do it through the fortress of our good deeds or of our reputation or of our success, right? Or our looks or our health. You name your own fortress. If you're honest, you know you have one. We all have them. But just like the Jews at Masada, it isn't too long until we discover that something always gets in. Something always finds a way. Something always breaks down the gate of our fortress. And that fortress that we thought was impenetrable is just an illusion. Perhaps cancer comes along. Maybe the stock market crashes Perhaps a loved one dies or a spouse cheats on us. Maybe a child gets addicted to opioids or a parent to alcohol. Perhaps a job is lost, abuse occurs, a natural disaster happens, or even a global pandemic comes along. And the fortress that we thought was safe is overrun. And the temporal thing that we had trusted in to save us never shows up, it doesn't deliver. Friends, none of these temptations is the right response when trouble or change comes our way. The good news of the gospel is that there is no need to bury our heads in the sand. There is no need to ramp up the pace of our already frenetic lives. There is no need to run to the hills. No. The only mountain that we need to turn to is one that's just outside the walls, the old city walls of Jerusalem. It's a place that I was also able to visit, the final place on my trip to Israel three years ago and another highlight of my trip, sharing communion at Golgotha with brothers and sisters in the Lord at Mount Calvary, the place where Jesus was crucified. In the great hymn, Here is Love, The Welsh hymn writer William Rees writes these words. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection have made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, whatever they are, and to be set free to experience the fullness of life that God gives to all those who will receive that grace and mercy, saying, Jesus, I repent, will you receive me into your kingdom? And for those who are already followers of Jesus in these difficult times of social, political, and cultural upheaval, we shouldn't bury our heads in the sand or try and create a safe fortress. We should be encouraged. As Luke puts it, your redemption is drawing near. It's drawing near. Yes, times may be difficult now. But rescue is coming. Maybe not today, or even next year, or even next decade. But one day, Jesus is going to return. And he will bring an end to all of the struggles that we face right now. And so because of this eternal perspective, even during these difficult times right now, we can have peace and we can have hope and we can have joy. And not just for our own benefit, which is often the temptation to think, but it's for the benefit of all those around us, our friends, our families, our neighbors, our work colleagues, etc. The gospel is for them too. They need to be rescued as well. And we have the authority to proclaim the gospel to them. So friends, today, as we close, will you receive God's peace? Will you live with his peace? And will you bring his peace wherever you go? Let's pray. Oh, come Holy Spirit, come move in this place this morning. In each person's heart, would you come and fill us with your peace? that peace that passes all understanding. And not just for our own good, but for the good of those around us, those struggling with stress and anxiety in our families, in our friendships, in our communities, Lord Jesus. Would we be people who bring peace? Would we be those peacemakers that you say are blessed in the Sermon on the Mount? People who just have an aura about us that exudes your peace and as people encounter us, they wonder what is different there? Why are they not anxious in the midst of all that's going on? And they ask us, what do you know that I don't know? And we can say, well, redemption is drawing near. Jesus is coming and you can experience the same peace too. We pray us in Jesus' name. Amen.